0: When Stephen Teep's wife Irene was diagnosed with cervical cancer, she fought the disease, determined to stay around as long as possible for their young boys, Oscar and Noah. But the cancer spread to her liver and lungs, and in the summer of 2017, Irene passed away. In May this year, Stephen learned something about his wife's death. Irene was one of the 221 women affected by the cervical check scandal who had been given false smear test results. We spoke to Stephen as part of a new podcast by thejournal.ie called Left Behind, presented by me, Michelle Hennessy. We'll be hearing from people who found themselves thrust into the role of a campaigner after a serious loss. They'll tell us what brought them to where they are now and how they feel about having to fight for change during one of the most challenging times in their lives. Our first guest is Stephen, who told us about his campaign so far.
1: Yeah, um, Irene and I met when um, she was 19 and I was 20. We got a job um, in a sports shop in Cork. She started college and I was saving up to go to Australia. And um, yeah, we just met through that. And, you know, she was a fun person. Um, you know, just, I suppose when just two personalities click, um, we got on exceptionally well. And um, she actually ended up dropping out of college to go to Australia with me. So obviously I was a... Um, Their parents were obviously delighted with me and (laughs) (laughs) dragging, dragging their little girl away. But you know what? Like we were a young couple in love and just, just, just ran away, Um, came back from Australia and um, got ourselves some proper jobs. And I suppose we just started settling down from there, Uh, bought a house, got engaged, got married, started then having a family. Um, I think both of us, I suppose we had the, the same dreams and the same plans for our future, you know? We always wanted a family um, but, you know, we wanted to, obviously, we loved each other and be with each other. So it was the, it was the two of us having our family and um, having having many children, you know, we, I think four was the disgust at one <laughs> point. And, you know, it even came to the point where I actually wanted more than her. So yeah. uh, she re- renegotiated me back down to four, <laughs> which is probably unusual. But uh, yeah, you know, I think it was, it was our dreams, you know, and like when we got married, you know, like we literally, I suppose. Irene was a planner and so was I and, you know, know, we had our whole lives planned out, get married, have children um, and that was the life that we saw in front of us, you know, like Irene's grandparents at our wedding were just after celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary and like even just talking about them on the day, you know, that's where we could see our lives going as well, you know, there was absolutely no reason why it wouldn't, they were the plans that we had for us.
0: And uh, it was about a year, I think, after you got married that you had Oscar, your first boy. And yeah. then in 2015, little Noah came along. Correct. And this is where Irene's health problems started to become clear.
1: Yeah, you know, like like we got married in September 2011 and we started, um, you know, trying for children straight away. And um, our firstborn Oscar came along on the 13th of December 2012. So we just were just after celebrating his birthday in the last few days and um and then you know Noah came along in April the 21st of April 2015 and you know absolutely everything was going to plan everything was perfect and it was it wasn't until then that after she gave birth to Noah that she as the weeks went by she wasn't recovering from childbirth and for all of us, like you know, for Irene and myself and the consultants, the doctors, we just all presumed it was just childbirth related given given what she was after going through. and um it wasn't until eighteen weeks that Irene eventually got diagnosed with stage two B cervical cancer in September, two thousand and fifteen. so um at the time she was still breastfeeding Noah, he was just over five months old. Oscar would have been about two and a half and Irene then um, had to begin um, treatment for cervical cancer in an eight week or so course of five days of radiotherapy, one day of chemotherapy um, and of course we had to stop breastfeeding, she had to stop breastfeeding Noah um, and she 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 was determined actually to not have cancer define her life or, you know, invade on the plans that she had for her boys because she was a, an advocate in herself for breastfeeding. She was very passionate about it. She would have breastfeed Oscar until he was like two years of age. So, you know, she didn't want... it. Was This was a huge um, thing for her as a mom. Um, when Irene got diagnosed, there was um, a couple of um, side effects that, um, you know, most women who get cervical cancer go through and fertility was one of those. And it was... At one point of our life, um, just after Irene um, finished her treatment, um, the fertility was probably one of the biggest problems that we had and um, that we were dealing with um, because obviously the plans that we had now were being rewritten for us. So we were, you know, looking at... um, you know adoption and you know all the different options you know surrogacy anything at all and uh, you know and that was probably at one stage the biggest point of our um i suppose the most important thing in our lives then because irene um about three months after she finished treatment. Um, Went back in for scans and was told, you know, everything went according to the plan. They were treated for cure and that's what they would have told us day one. So um, they said, yeah, everything is perfect. All all we can see now is scar where the tumour would have been. And, you know, we'll bring you back in every three months now for follow up appointments. But no, go on with your life and, you know, keep going. So that's what we were doing Um, up to the Middle of two thousand and sixteen, and during the summer, then we now started knowing. I mean, getting sick again during the summer, and it all started all over again for
0: us. It must have been very difficult and very frightening, especially when you had had two young children. What was that time like when she was very ill?
1: I think one of the things that everybody goes through when, when I suppose when you're for in our example when you're in a couple and one person is going through cancer treatment, it is. Um, Financially, it's 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 a huge burden, and given that we had small children, we still had a mortgage to pay, we still had food to put on the table. Obviously, I had to continue to work as well, so it was um, it was a very busy time. But you know, we were we were we were willing to take on that fight, and we did, and um, yeah, and um, fought. We did, and it was a we got through it the first time round, but it wasn't until the following summer then that when we taught. Um, that we had beaten this and that this whole cancer was behind us that Irene started developing pain in her back and we just presumed Irene would have always kind of had a slightly dodgy back anyway and we went on holidays back in May and she was wearing a sling and carrying Noah around a lot and we just thought maybe she just did a little bit too much walking and that sort of thing on holidays and she just pulled something you know but that pain throughout the summer started gradually getting worse and worse and worse to the point where Irene would be upstairs, I'd be downstairs and I can really hear her whimpering in pain and because she was just an incredibly strong person and rarely gave out, um, particularly about cancer and the pain that she was going through, it was came to the point where the pain was getting too much for her to be quiet and then around August I started noticing that the weight was just falling off her. Um, Irene was never a heavy person. She was always slim. She was tall, but I'm starting to notice that she was getting like exceptionally thin now, all of a sudden. And September two thousand and sixteen, she had her second follow up appointment, and she wasn't even going to mention the pain in her back. And it was me that actually ended up saying to the consultant, "You know, look, let's talk about this." And the consultant was like, "All right, look, what I'm going to do is, as precautionary measure, is just." get you tested for everything, you know, put you through all of the scans because um, you don't give out, that you, out any of the treatment that you've gone through. I've been looking after you now all the last year, she goes, and um, you didn't, you never complained once, but now you're complaining about this back. I just, I just want to do it just to make sure that everything is all right. And that was the point. Then a couple of weeks later, she was brought in for a scan in the morning. That afternoon, they phoned her to come straight back in that she had a massive, massive lesion on her um, liver cyst that needed to be drained and it was then about two weeks after a number of tests that she was re-diagnosed with secondary liver cancer and there was also tumours in her lung and this time the conversation was different because they weren't uh, treating for cure this time, like cure was never mentioned Um, they were just trying to manage the cancer you know, like you're going to be living with cancer now and they had a plan set out for chemotherapy um do you know they they were saying, "Oh, look, we'll try this chemotherapy first, and then we have a second one lined up after that, and a third lined up after that um, But this fight was a whole lot different because um when you when when Irene got cervical cancer the first time, you couldn't tell she was sick. there was no hair loss or anything else. she just looked like she always didn't." That's what Irene used to always say, you know, like, like no one knew she was sick because she was able to put on this, this, this front when she went out in public, you know, that you just wouldn't notice. But the second time round, because of the, the, I suppose, the the severity of the chemo that she was going to be on this time, this was going to be hair loss. This was going to be, you're going to be bedridden. You would have to go for one course of t- chemotherapy, um once every three weeks so the first week after it you're literally floored the second week you're kind of picking yourself up the third week you're almost back to normal and then you get zapped again with the chemotherapy and that was going on for about three months um and after about two sessions of that um irene lost her hair straight away like it was really really fast and it was then that irene you know was very self-conscious that now I, I know I'm sick but now I look sick and everybody who doesn't know me when I walk down the road knows I'm sick as well and then she was noticing doors were being opened first, people were g- giving up their seats which she hated because she was just such a strong person and such such a fighter that um, yeah, it was the second time round was just, just absolutely horrendous and that's when she actually had to stop breastfeeding Noah permanently and I think, you know, obviously getting the news of the cancer returning was Horrendous the um having to, to stop breastfeeding, no, it was probably one of the lowest points as well for her. That absolutely broke her heart.
0: And so, things from that point then would have happened quite quickly. And in July of, of 2017, that was when Irene died. Can you take me through that day?
1: Yeah, um, well, I suppose it wasn't until um about two weeks before that, or just over two weeks, that Irene, um, we were told that they're stopping treatment, and that there was no more that they can do; that the cancer was too progressive, and that was the first time that we heard the words "terminal." We had ne- never been mentioned by any of the consultants prior to that, so for us, that's when we knew that the fight was over. Up until that point, all of, those, all of the all the we were just fighting. There was no dying or anything like that, and that for us was um, was. Uh, yeah, it was it was obviously the worst day of our lives, you know, and just couldn't believe it, like Irene sitting in the bed as looking like she normally did, you know, obviously small but sick, but she still had some amount of energy and was still, you know, active, but, you know, being told that someone is going to die is, is, is the worst news you can ever, ever get, and um, we asked the question, look, how long will this be and what does the end look like, you know, like how will this all end, and the consultant was like you know look it's 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 a very hard thing to predict but we, we expect that it'll be a few short weeks this was around the 14th of July we went home that day and that was it you know you're kind of planning for the end Irene set herself another milestone in her head do you know all she wanted to do now was see our oldest boy Oscar start school he was due to start primary school around I think it was around like the 30th of August or something like that at the end of August anyway and that was what she put in her head she wanted to see him start school um, but about a week and a half later, the day she died, Irene just started getting a lot of pain um, in her stomach. And she had been sleeping a lot then, kind of the few days leading up to that. Um, but she yeah, she just started getting a, uh, a lot of pain and that evening just went rapidly downhill. And um, yeah, it was um, about four o'clock in the morning. Her family and every everyone was down in the house because we would have had paramedics in our house from about one or two o'clock that morning. And, um, yeah, she passed away around four o'clock with her mum, her dad, her three sisters, my parents, myself, um, at home. And, you know, look, obviously she didn't want to die, but one of the things that she said was she didn't want to be put into a hospice to die, that she wanted to die at home. So at least, look, she got that anyway. Um, And that was on the 26th of July. Um, Oscar and Noah... Were at home as well that night, and they were still in bed, fast asleep. So, um, do you know, like the undertakers came and took Irina away, did all that before the boys got up. And I wanted that done quickly because I needed to tell Oscar. Do you know, the doctors tried everything, and they, um, there was nothing more that they could do. And that mum died last night, and literally, like fully grown adult I didn't have to explain one thing a second time to him he didn't have any questions he just understood straight away and just like a grown-up he just reacted as we all would have and just literally just broke down crying and um god like it's 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 one of these things that's just literally tattooed in the forefront of my mind this conversation that'll never leave me it's the most difficult thing breaking your Son's heart delivering that news is the, is the worst thing I've ever done in my life. Um, something I never want to go through again, obviously. But it's, it's, it was, it was really, really difficult. And um, yeah.
0: And of course, at the time that Irene passed away, she had no idea that there had been errors in her smear tests in the past, or that she would have been, you know, what we now know as one of the seventeen women who's um, who. Died and who was affected by the cervical check scandal? How was that news broken to you then?
1: Irene had absolutely no idea whatsoever that there was any problem with anything that she had done with regard to healthcare and, you know, the screening program or anything like that. Um, one of the questions, to, probably the first question that Irene asked when she first got diagnosed back in September two thousand fifteen, was, "How was this not picked up in my smear test? I did everything right." I went for my routinely smears. When I was recalled, I was straight back. And I remember she used to tell me that she was, when she used to get these done. And it was a question that was never, um, we're given an answer to or were we ever told, you know what, because you just got diagnosed with cervical cancer, this is going to trigger an audit on your smears and we can find that out for you. Like none of that information was ever shared with Irene. And even three weeks, like Irene must have asked that question. 50 times if not 100 times throughout the course of the two years that she was fighting this because it was certainly something on her mind that she just couldn't get out of her head The, I suppose the the explanation that was given to us by the consultant was look there are limitations to screening but you know look it could have been a case that when they took the smear the sample they could have taken it from a different area the cervix and all of these different scenarios with the limitations and and you know we pretty much bought that excuse um, that was fine Um it still didn't satisfy Irene, um, but it was it, at least it was an answer or somewhat an answer to her question. And those results of that audit turned up um, the week before, just over about a week and a half before, we were told that Irene was terminal. So that day we were sitting in the C.U.H. Um, Irene and I sitting on her bed, her big massive tick file sitting there with us. And that audit result buried in the middle of it, we never knew about it at the time. And um, you never
0: even knew there was an audit going on.
1: We didn't even know there was an audit going on. Not mine, that the answer to her question was sitting there in our company. Um, so it wasn't until Vicky blew the lid off this scandal that um, it was a Tuesday. I was in our, um, my office in Tala and I got a phone call from the HSC, um, and it was an two one four nine two nine number came up and Irene was actually an employee of the HSC and the start of her um, direct line actually started the exact same so as soon as I saw that number come up I knew exactly what this was about and it was just this woman on the phone to say that um, she's ringing just in relation to my late wife Irene and it's in relation to the audits that were carried out in the smear and I said to her is she one of the 17 women that passed away because it was 17 at the time and um, she said yes she is and god like I just I was kind of as much as I had prepared myself to get this call because it was like a tick-bock exercise when the news was breaking, like in the previous two days that Irene had cervical cancer, she had she participated in the screening program, she had passed away, it was tick, 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 so I was kind of saying, God, I could probably get a call about this, but I was absolutely floored when I was actually confirmed to me that she was, um, I like I just, I went to, I ran into one of the offices on my own and like, you know, I just started trembling and shaking and Your vision goes blurry, like you're literally just completely shocked by it. And it came to the point where I just said to the lady on the phone, I cannot continue this conversation, no longer on the phone. I need to have a face-to-face with someone. And that's when they offered me um, the appointment with the consultant um, two nights later. And we, um, myself, Irene's mom and dad, went into the original consultant that would have first looked after Irene, and he had been, um, I suppose, given the task of disclosing this information about the audit to us. And that's when we learnt that um, Irene had two smears taken. Well, I found that out the previous from her GP that she had a smear in 2010, she had a smear in 2013. I had the physical copy of the results that her GP and Irene would have received, and to know that they were both negative and called back again in three years for 2010, called back again between three and five years for the 2013 um, results so we went into consultant and he sat us down and he had just this one pager oh, well, first of all you see Irene's big file that we would have been in the company of the previous year um, on his desk opened up and then there's that one pager sitting on top of it. And it was like the page was broken into two with a line down the middle of it and on the left-hand side of the page was the results that Irene was originally given and on the right inside side the page was the audited results, the results that they um, that they got when, when they went back and looked at them. And both of the, the audited results were showing up differently to what Irene had been reported. So in 2010, um, it, when it came back clear, the audit results were showing precancerous cells in 2013. Um, when it came back clear, the audit results were showing the early stages of cancer on it. And if you think about the timeline of the of the progression of Irene's cancer, it was 2015 then that Irene was diagnosed with stage 2B. So it went from 2010 to precancerous to 2015 to have stage 2B cancer. And that was the day then that we were told about the misreads. But what I've learned since um, from, I suppose, Dr. Gabriel Scali and and um, everything was like the limited amount of information that these consultants were given and they were just throwing these, these um, results to give to us was, you know, like they had no idea were these misreads due to negligence or due to the limitation of screening. Like when we asked, like, how could this happen, You know the only excuse they could give was limitation of screening. Obviously, they didn't have enough information to say that it was anything else. And this would have been the case for the 221 women and next of kins that would, would have been dragged in over those couple of weeks that they were given the news that their smears were misread. But there was no confirmation whatsoever on why was that.
0: That's very frustrating, though.
1: Absolutely. And this is the, the, the whole battle then that, you know, that we were all left to figure out what did these misreads mean. Like for Irene, it was, if they were misread, or sorry, if they were read correctly first time, um, she would be alive today, no doubt. If they picked up on the 2010 smear, there was a high probability she'd still be able to have more children. Our life would have continued um, the way we had planned for it to. um, And we were left walking out of there, not knowing what these misreads were about. Um... And I mean, at, at
0: the time, were you were you angry? Because since you've been in, in the public eye, you always seem so uh, together, and you know you're always re- re- very, seem a very calm person when you're talking about it. Um, and I think a lot of people who are listening would think, you know, that they'd be just screaming all the time and throwing things and breaking things, and you would just almost want to set the world on fire after having something like that happen to you. At the time when it happened first, you know, were you furious?
1: initially I was just absolutely devastated and heartbroken because you're literally finding out do you know that um, like that was the day you found that that, that I found out Irene didn't have to die, didn't have to get cancer I went home that night with absolutely no support given to me by the HSC none whatsoever, you were given that news and thrown back out the door you were practically high-fiving the next woman or next of kin coming into in to see the consultant to be delivered, their blow, you know it was just conveyor belt, it was just horrible and that night like our my my we didn't sit with that consultant till eight o'clock that night, which meant I had to get babysitters for the for the two boys, so Irene's sister and her boyfriend came down and were looking after the boys and I got home about ten o'clock that night and um, I updated them on what we had just been told, and then they left and here I am on my own again, but this time with the additional news that um me sitting here on my own without Irene didn't have to be. And I'm just completely lost. The two boys are fast asleep upstairs. And you say anger. Anger took a while to settle in. I was just devastated. Like that for me, it was nine months after Irene had passed away. I was just starting to get my life back together. Um, the boys and I had a firm structure in place for our daily routine. There was a small glimmer of hope, a little, a little bit of white light at the end of the tunnel that we could see, and that we were kind of saying, "You know what? We might be able to manage this." You know, um, and we were getting on. And you know, I was, you know, like I was going out with my friends every couple of weeks and just trying to re-socialise again because you kind of really have to do. I don't know, walk back into the world again, you know, because you're now on your own, you're a completely new person. And, you know, we were we were after going through all that. And I have to say, like the second time in a nine month period, I found myself at rock bottom again, um, completely at rock bottom. The day Irene died was the first time I was at rock bottom.
0: And at that time, nobody... You know, a part of the people who knew you guys well would have been aware of Irene or Irene's story and, you know, the wider public wouldn't have known who Stephen Teep is. Uh, You're a public figure in Ireland now and people do know who you are. Why did you decide to go public with what is a very personal story for your family?
1: Yeah, I suppose for me, I suppose just to go back to when Irene passed away and I mentioned I was at rock bottom, you know. Um, What got me out of bed the next morning was when Oscar and Noah jumped on top of me like a typical four and two year old do, demanding breakfast. And you know, you get out of bed, you feed them, you start eating yourself. Lunchtime, they need more food and so on, and every day goes on. And you know, they they're really what picked me up again. Um that night when I was at home, um, after coming back from the consultants, and you're literally your back is to the floor and you're just staring up this world. You're just at the lowest point going, what am I gonna do? And again my thoughts went to my two boys, obviously they're far too young to understand anything that's been going on in the last few months, but they'll, they won't they will be young forever and there's going to be a point where I'm going to have to sit down with Oscar and Noah, that they're going to ask me questions on what happened to their mum, you know, and I don't know when that'll be, I just had in my head 10 years from now when they're early teenagers, do you know and if they're anything like their parents and if they're anything like the way I want to raise them the first question they're going to ask me is what the hell did you do about this when you found out and that I suppose meant that you know, I, for me the answer is one thing, I have to do everything I can and I did everything I can and it wasn't until I was at rock bottom I think well I suppose when the first time and the second time you're kind of faced with two options, do do nothing or do something you know, there's no right answer and no wrong answer for what decision you take there. But for me, it was very simple. I have to do something. I have to get the answers to the questions that we don't know. I have to figure out exactly what went wrong. Um, also try and fix as much of it that I possibly can. Um, so this doesn't happen again. The pain that the three of us went through, Oscar, Noah, myself, when Irene first pa- passed away, is something that no one should go through particularly if it can be avoided and it was trying to I suppose to expose our story just to throw the failings of what happened to us out there just to highlight them in order for them to be fixed um I really just made a decision for me that I have to do something about this in order for me to do something I needed to raise my profile to a level where I can actually speak to the people in power that can get me the answers or at least put pressure on them or influence somewhat change. And that's when I made the decision to, to, I suppose, open up the doors of my house and expose the pain that everybody knows today that Irene went through, I went through and my two boys went through um, to the country. At that point as well, um, it was just over a... It was was just a week after Vicky had been on the Ray Darcy show. And at that stage, this had just been... um, A woman's problem, which essentially it is cervical cancer and smear testing. But the point as well, I wanted to raise that it wasn't just a woman's problem. This is a family problem. This doesn't affect women. When you attack the mothers of this country, you're attacking everybody in it. And there's children left behind. There's young widowers like myself left behind. This is a problem for everyone. Irene's parents are still alive. They've buried her daughter. Her grandmother was still alive. She buried her granddaughter. Um, Do you know, this was a problem for everyone for the whole country to be concerned about. And this is why I, I, I suppose I put my story out there and made, made myself public um, just to raise my profile to a level so I can start taking on this fight, attacking the system that failed us and exposing the truth of what went on so it can be fixed
0: and you mentioned you know, reaching the, the people who are in power, the people who have the power to, to do something to make sure that it doesn't happen again in the future. How would you describe the, the response of the HSE and I suppose the government on, on the wider scale of things?
1: The reaction of the government, the HSE, the Department of Health has been absolutely horrendous from the get go. They have never once been in control of this. They've just been in a position of reacting, reacting to the, the next breaking news, reacting to the next um, person that made their cells public in this, instead of being proactive and getting out and actually getting the answers. um, Like if you remember early on in the start of April, it was the Department of Health were passing on no information to the, the minister Health, so therefore he couldn't update the doll. The only information that we had was coming from the, the, the public health committee and the public accounts committee. They were the only people that were dragging out these bits of information. And it it was it it's I don't think it's something that they should have had to do, but thank God we had something in place like that committee at the time to actually sit these relevant people down and in public drag this information out of them. They were literally dragging the information out of it if you remember. Day by day there was something new coming along the whole time. Um, it, like, they had no consideration for the the government had no consideration for the families, and the women in this, and it it was the day before I made my um story public. I did it on the Sunday Times with Justine McCarthy. On the, the day before, um, I had Simon Coveney in my house. He lives up the road from me, and I had contacted him to get up to my house and I told him that he was aware at this point that Irene my wife was one of the women in this I wanted him to drag him into my house I wanted him to sit in front of Oscar Noah, myself and I wanted him to listen to exactly what I had just been told by the HSC and the misreading of those two smears and I'm absolutely convinced he learned more from me that day about the scandal than he had done in the previous week and a half from actually the tarnished death sitting in Leinster House that's how Desperate that um the reaction from everybody in providing information about this was, but at the same time as well supporting the victims and families that was the very first time that a discussion was ever had about bringing in support for the women and the families in this it was Simon Coveney sitting in my house that Saturday when that was the first time that a demand was made, and that's when I made it to him because, as I said to him when I got home that Thursday, I was left with absolutely nothing no support whatsoever. And my only trail of thought was because I kept on thinking about Irene in the middle of that harshest treatment um, when she was in in and out of hospital every two, three weeks. I was thinking like, how many women are like that now fighting cervical cancer who are alive and been given this blow and having to go back to the consultant the following week or the following two weeks, knowing that they lied to them or withheld information, but also in, in trying to entrust their lives um Upon those consultants to to save them, when all of this trust has just been eroded from from between themselves and the system, because that was one of the biggest things that happened with this whole um disclosure element this just this piece of it was that all our trust instantly was just eroded with between us and the healthcare system. And you know, like I said that that was the first time that supports was ever mentioned and it was the previous Friday then that it was announced by um, the Minister of Health that the supports will come in place for the women and the families of this and that liaison officers were appointed throughout the the country to to help everybody. The reaction throughout the summer then, since then, has been hot and cold. It's hot when it's in the press, you know, if there's something breaking. Um, I could nearly ring Simon Harris and he'll answer within two rings. But when it's not in the press, you you wouldn't hear from anybody. And that's just not how this is supposed to be. We are still at the very, very early stages of this scandal. We are only scratching at the surface of it still. We will never reach a conclusion on this for, in my opinion, for at least a minimum of two years. And it's not until everybody has their own independent reviews done of these smears and their... um they could answer that burning question Did these misread smears fall into the limitations of screening or were they negligently um, misread. And until everybody finds that out and they've gone through the court system and the last person walks out of that court, will we ever get a conclusion on exactly the scale of this? On exactly how many people were negligently affected by this this whole scandal? Like if you look at it from, while I'm doing two things, one I'm fighting for to repair the system and get all of the answers for, for, for I suppose for the, for the for the women of Ireland, but also as well to get the answers for the people that are affected by this. So I can turn to my boys and you know Look, this is what I participated in. I also have my own personal fight in this, and this is like what what went on with Irene. And you know, like we've been since the start of May, we've been trying to request Irene's medical files. Couldn't get those for ages. Finally got them. We got Irene's smears. Eventually back in August and it was last Friday that for the first time that I actually got a conclusion on um, on exactly what happened Irene Smears when I got her medical review finally back our own independent review and for the first time eight months later we've got confirmation that Irene's slides were negligently misread and that there was a breach of duty of care when it came to Irene so now I know for for a fact that the system she failed her Um, that she did not have to be dead. Um, She did not have to to have cancer. And um, last year was the first time that we had Christmas without Irene. This Christmas is the first time without Irene knowing that she should still be here, that she was failed by the screening programme and the system.
0: And when you think about the the people who've been at the forefront of this campaign, you know, like yourself, somebody who is still grieving, we have uh, Vicky Phelan who is still undergoing treatment. We had Emma Vic Fahuna who was dying up until, you know, or, or was campaigning right up until the point that she died and she was very sick during that time. Are you resentful of the fact that you're the people who've had to do this?
1: No, I, I am and I'm not. I suppose, I suppose the type of person I am. Um, I suppose I'm a fighter and the thing is this fight didn't start. May this year. This started in September twenty fifteen for us, so we've been fighting ever since. Um I'm not resentful because at least I get to shout for the answers and I get to pick the fights with the people that aren't doing it. And there's a little bit of therapy in that for me, I suppose, if I'm gonna be selfish about it after everything we've been done. But also I suppose I know the type of person I am and I will not let it rest. Um I'm i st- I'm that stubborn that I will keep going with this till the bitter end until so um from my my for myself, no, I'm not um, resentful for, for for seeing poor Emma Fick Mahuna and the likes of Ficky feeling her fighting a terminal diagnosis. Um, it makes me angry to see that people in that situation have to do that, or even people in my own situation who were trying to raise two boys now on my own um, are put into this situation in order to get the answers that they're not that we can't trust the system enough or the government enough to to do this fighting for us. Um, there's no one out there I know of um, within the system and when I say the system I mean the healthcare system and government combined that I can rely on to, to do this work for us and this is why we have to do it. So i more resentful of the system that's in place than actually us going ahead and having to do it.
0: Stephen thank you for joining us and for, for sharing your story with us and best of luck in the future. Thank you. You've been listening to the journal.ie's new podcast Left Behind, presented by me, Michelle Hennessy, and produced and edited by Nikki Ryan. Music is by AudioNautics. Thank you to Headstuff for the use of their studio, and thank you for listening.